Okay. Ready? We'll do a, let's do one, two, three, four, five, and then clap on six. Okay. But do but you gotta do the ands. One and two and three and four. That? Yes. And then we'll clap five and and clap on six. Yep. Okay, here we go. Ready? Mm-hmm. All right. Together, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> All right, no. here we go. Okay. One and two and three and four and five and Oh, I forgot to clap. God damn it, really? Hey, everybody. Welcome to I'm Okay, You're Okay. I'm not okay. You're not okay. With me, Bob Schneider, and your other host, Clint Wells. You're welcome. Hey, everybody. Welcome to I'm Okay, You're Okay. I'm not okay. You're not okay. You're not okay. Here we go. We're cramming this episode in. We're we're being diligent and thoughtful podcast hosts. You have a you're about to split for a week on the Kiss Cruise, and we wanted to make sure we were taking care of our little babies out there in podcast land. So here we are, early Monday morning, getting it done, getting that shit done, son. Do we have babies listening to this podcast? Sweet babies. Well, what they do uh, is when when kids are born and they you know they put them all in that one nursery room, they pump "I'm okay, you're okay" into that room to do. <laughs> That'd be cool to get the kids ready. It's the thing. It's social conditioning. Man, when I was a kid, we used to listen to Matt. I mean, we didn't listen to shit. That everything. There was nothing you could listen to when I was a kid. You had to read it, or you had to be shown it, like using puppets. Right. But you couldn't. You couldn't actually listen to anything. Um. But when I was a kid, we read a magazine called Mad Magazine, and then cracked magazine as well and basically what that magazine uh instructed us to do was to take everything with a grain of salt right and i don't think kids have that nowadays i i think about that all the time it's such a good point because we my wife and i are so attentive to our kid and which has been awesome and i think a lot of that has to do with trying to reverse patterns that you know in so many ways, I treat my kid the way that I wish I had been treated when I was a kid. However, sure. the the flip side of that, though, is you're so right. Like, I was raised on the the shit that kids should not be reading and watching. I was raised on horror films and, uh, you know, lascivious Black Sabbath records, etc. And yeah, kids kids are just way more protected from that now. I mean, my first memory of being a human being is watching A Nightmare on Elm Street. Like, unattended, three years old. It was just on TV at my grandparents' house in Montgomery, Alabama in the 80s. And, you know, I turned out okay, I guess. I don't know. Conan O'Brien was telling a story on his podcast about Tom Hanks came to a party at Conan's house. And when he walked in and looked around at what I imagine is a very opulent house that Conan O'Brien lives in, Tom Hanks' first sentence was, well, your kids aren't going to be funny. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which right. is pretty good. Well, there is that idea that if you're raised properly or with care and like all your needs are attended to, then somehow you're not going to have that. I mean, the only reason I do everything I do is because I have zero sense of self-esteem. Like I have no love for myself. So I have to do all this stuff so that I feel like I'm deserving of love. And if you don't have that, like, what's the motivation to do anything? I totally agree. Like, I was going to see what you thought. I mean, like, there are all sorts of myths that are attached to creative types. And one of them, which we actually got an email about that I thought this was interesting, but one of the myths that I am comfortable calling a myth is the idea that you have to be 
a drug-addled person to make good art, like an alcoholic, or you have to have your muse has to be whatever it is. Oh, he was better when he was on heroin or whatever. We've talked about that a little bit, but I think the idea that you do have to be searching for something that was broken as a kid, I do think that rings true for me. Um, I don't know too many creative people who are interesting who did have, who were tended to well as children. Do you? Do you know anyone like that? That breaks the mold a little bit. The the people that I know that are the most talented that I like the most are the f- f- most fucked up. Right. Yeah, I think it's the same for me. So, I mean, and there might be people that aren't that way. But, like, I love Paul Simon. He's one of my favorite songwriters. And I imagine, like, Paul Simon's kind of got it together because it just sounds like he's got it together in his songwriting. But have you ever... If you listen to an interview with him, he is the most cantankerous yeah. interviewee I've ever listened he's to. Grumpy, like I, grumpy, just, I, yeah. I, I, I'm like I don't ever want to listen to him uh, being interviewed again because he's like every que- like the the interviewer will ask the most benign question like so uh, whatever it, is, it doesn't matter what the question is he he Paul Simon's like. He's like, oh, where'd you come up with the title for the album Graceland or whatever? You know, whatever. Mm -hmm. Like something benign. And he'd be like, well, I didn't. (laughs) He would just act like he's being attacked. Right. And that that question was the dumbest question anybody could ever ask. And you're like, just a regular question. So (laughs) he's probably, what I'm saying is he's got some issues. For sure. Well, for sure. I, I mean, I, it's funny that your takeaway is that he's cantankerous. It's so true. I haven't really thought about it that way. You know, my takeaway from interviews of Paul Simon, because like you, he's one of my favorites of all time, and I've gone down the rabbit hole. His interviews, to me, are sad. He seems really sad a lot. And uh, to be such a, uh, you know, to have international acclaim, to have written some of the greatest songs ever, obviously, his, you know, bills are paid. That, sh- that shit that gets broken doesn't go away and we spend our whole lives trying to fix it with art and that's what makes art interesting it's just that's true i think that's true and it does mean that that at least my kid is not going to have much of a shot of being an artist because she's getting a different treatment than me i mean i mean we're doing things that are fucked up for sure probably but you know it's it's a whole different shake than what i got well here's the thing i think people this is this all right this is my opinion i think that uh, people are specialized. What I mean by specialized means like some people are are born a certain way because that's when we were being, when we were evolving as human beings, we needed that type of person to protect the community at large. I think the community at large is mostly like regular, let's just call them regular people. And then you have some specialized people in the community. Somebody who um, is hyper vigilant, who sees everything and who's aware of everything. Now, unfortunately, that person has a hard time sleeping at night because they're up all night while the regular people are sleeping, getting their Zs. Uh, he's up all night hearing every little crick and crone, crick, every little crick and crick, crickety crack that's happening in the fucking cave be, just in case a goddamn snake or viper or a goddamn whatever is in the fucking cave is about to kill somebody. He's like, oh, there, there's a viper there about to kill you. Now that person, uh, you know, had a job back then. They don't need that job now. So what, are, what is that person going to do? They're going to turn that towards whatever's in their environment. 
And those people become artists and they also become drug addicts and alcoholics because they're so sensitive. They're so hyper aware. They need something to dull that. And sometimes it's uh, drugs and alcohol. And, and sometimes it's, it's music or art or writing a goddamn fucking 500 page novel, whatever it is, it's something to tamp that down. Now, if you're, if your daughter's one of those people, it doesn't matter how she's raised, uh, she's going to have to find something to tamp that down. She's going to have to find something to, 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 to work that muscle. So she, she will do something. Uh, it might be creative. It might not. And, and again, is the more interesting stuff, the, the stuff that comes from people that are really broken or I don't know, you know, but, but they're going to do something if they, if they're born that way, they're going to do something with it. I do feel like I'm less interested in broken people than I am in how broken people are trying to be better. That's that's just, as I get older, more interesting to me. Because as I wade in, into my mid to late 30s, and I, I dealt with infantile parents also, and uh, I know you have a little bit of experience with some of what I'm talking about too, but... The idea of like, oh, I, I was, I'm broken. Oh, I, my parents didn't do A, B, or C. That conversation is getting really boring because what's more interesting to me now is, well, what are you fucking doing about it? Because what I'm experiencing in my life is a lot of grown adults acting like babies and still blaming their parents for shit when they need to grow up and learn how to be human beings. I was not given great models for how to do that. I had to figure it out for the sake of, for the sake of being a human being on the planet. So I'm I'm just losing patience in that. Do you understand what I'm talking about? Dude, I was just thinking about it this morning, how like you just think when you're a kid, like all the adults um are grown ups and right. then all the old people are wise old people. But but my parents are in their seventies, they act like teenagers most of the time because they never matured. They never matured emotionally. They only matured physically. So you look at him and you go, oh, the, the, it's kind of like our president. Like our president looks like, oh, this is a 70-year-old dude. Um, he's wearing a suit and a tie. So he must be, uh, you know, he must be in a mature adult. But he's not. Emotionally, that guy's acting like a teenager. Yeah. Most of the time, or, or sometimes younger than yeah, that. Yeah, a teenager would be a compliment. <clears throat> and people are like, why, why is he not acting like he looks? Because people don't always mature emotionally especially if at some point they 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 had to stop maturing and and he probably comes from a household where where feelings were not cool uh, his dad sounded like a real dick and i'm sure his dad probably fucking hit him across the face when he was like 8 and 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 he was like okay well uh, i guess i got to be a man now so i'm going to act like a man and then what you do when you start acting like a man when you're eight or five or four or whenever it is that you got to do it. Um, I probably had to do it when I was about five. You probably had to do it around that age, maybe a little older. I don't know. Yeah, um, I was about 12 when that that reality came crashing down. Yeah. But at some point you, you realize, oh, this situation I'm in, I've got to now be an adult because people around me are fucked up. And if you do that and then you never get help and you never go to therapy and you never do that stuff. You're just going to be stuck there. And, and our president stuck there. I was stuck there into my forties. And then I went, started going to group therapy and then group therapy. I finally had an, an opportunity to start maturing emotionally. And now I feel, uh, 
I feel like an adult. Like I've matured emotionally. I don't act the way I acted 10 years ago or 20 years ago because I was, because I had some help maturing. Now, does our president need help uh, maturing emotionally? Not according to him. According to him, everything's fine. And according to my parents, I was just talking to my dad, who's the same age as 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 our president. And I was like, Dad, why don't you, uh, you know, because he's sober and he's going to AA and stuff. I'm like, why don't you work the steps? He's like, I don't need the steps. I'm like, you need the steps, dude. You need to do a little work. Right. And he's just like, I, I'm, I, I'm fine. I've been sober for 20 years. I'm like, no, you, you haven't had a drink in 20 years. Yeah, it's isn't it weird how that's that's just all tangled up in all a bunch of other shit. Um, I, I want to tell a quick little Brady Sinella story that will sort of wrap that up, and then I want to read an email that's for you um, that ties into this. Brady Sinellis talks about how he he's 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 your age, I think, Bob. I think he's around fifty, and he said a few years ago he was having some sort of emotional crisis and hadn't been in therapy for a while. I don't know if it's like his boyfriend broke up with him or whatever, and he he got some like high dollar, high class celebrity LA therapist, put a little, make a little time for him. He pulled some favors with some friends cause he was, he like desperately needed to talk to somebody. So this, you know, celebrity therapist brings him in. He's like, well, all right, so what's going on with you? And Brady said, I'll start talking about his parents and this therapist cut him off. And he said, listen, you're 50 fucking years old. And if you haven't dealt with your parents stuff yet, then I'm not going to help. I can't help you. I'm not going to do that today. Like, we're here to talk about you, what's going on with you. We're not going to talk about your parents. It's, that's over. The, the time to have done that work is over. And uh, that kind of tough love resonates with me. Because how long, how, how, how long into our lives are we going to keep playing that fucking card? I know people who are still doing it, and it's just, that was the 20s. In your 20s, you realize that every, the authoritarianism of your parents was a sham, and you'd make peace with it. Yeah, but, I mean, some people don't learn that. Some people some people haven't done that work. I know, a lot of people haven't, but I'm, I'm just losing right. patience for it, because how? what can you, I can't, you know what I mean? Like, that, con- that conversation just doesn't interest me anymore. I don't have time for it. Sure. At our age, you know? Like, fuck. Well, but my dad was traveling. What? Okay. Now, back to the sobriety thing. I guess the grow up is kind of the scrolling marquee that I feel a lot in my head about myself and about the world around me, especially in this culture that you and I talk about a lot, the, the sort of butthurt woke culture. It's just grow up. Fucking grow up. Find a way. Now, back to the alcohol stuff. This is from Mundy Hendrickson. By the way, bobandclint at gmail.com. You can email us. We read pretty much every email we get on the show. She says, uh, he or she, Mundy, I'm not sure if that's a dude or a chick. Directed to Bob, but Clint, I always want your two cents or more, too. Okay. She says, Bob, I know you've been performing since you were a kid, so performing predates alcohol use, but once you reached the age where you were drinking and performing, uh, can you tell us what it was like to go back to performing after getting sober? Was it harder to access the parts of yourself that allow you to, quote-unquote, put yourself out there? Do you see any tracking between your journey with sobriety and how your songwriting evolved? Um, there's more ancillary questions here. Any songs that we might be familiar with that were written under the influence of anything back in the day? So that's kind of a lot. Like, what did you notice? What was the biggest difference when you, you got sober around 30, so that was around Lonely Land time? I was playing in Ugly Americans when I got sober, and I, I'd been playing in that band for about two years 
I'd never played a gig sober with that band. Now, I'd played a bunch of sober gigs with other bands before that band. Uh, I was in a band called Joe Rockhead. I never played drunk in that band. Um, I, I, I did get high a couple times early on in that band, and then I, I saw a video of me uh, like from one of our first shows, and I'm just standing there at the mic, and I'm like, uh, I got to not be stoned when I'm playing. So I... I had a couple years of playing where I wasn't drinking and then I was only drinking. And then, so when I finally got sober, yeah, there was a show or two where I'm like, you know, kind of aware of the audience and aware of being on stage and aware of being sober, but you just kind of get used to that almost immediately. I've never really written uh, music stoned or drunk. I mean, a little bit, but nothing worth a damn. Everything that I've written that's good, I wrote the next day after I woke up, you know, with a hangover or... So I was always pretty sober when I was writing. Now, I I loved to write something and record it and then get stoned and listen to it stoned. That was really cool. And I've never... Because I've been sober for 24 years, I've never had a chance to do that. And really, I, I, I do sometimes go, oh, it would be so cool to listen to this stone. I'm sure I would really, I think I would like enjoy it uh, listening to my material, but I just don't do it. I've never done it. I, I don't plan on doing it. So um, yeah, so never really wrote anything stoned or drunk that was worth a damn um, and continue to do so. Were you an artist type who maybe you wrote when you were like the next day when you were hungover, but did you, did you glorify the drinking as like part of a muse or was it, did you sort of put it in its place? Like maybe, uh, um, ugly Americans was kind of a party band with a party crowd. So you drank at the party, but they didn't have anything to do with you as an artist or was it tied up with like, you were living a quote unquote artist lifestyle in Austin, you know? what you're supposed to do like you're just you know if you're like you know I I was an alcoholic so I mean I I knew I was an alcoholic from the time of the first time I drank I just drank that way people would ask me why do you drink so much and I'd be like well because I'm an alcoholic and uh and that was part of the whole rock and roll lifestyle I I just assumed I was gonna die young uh I put myself in harm's way quite a bit um when I was drinking and I just figure, well, something's going to happen. I'll die in some accident, and that'll be that. And I'll just be part of that, you know, rock and roll, die young thing. It does kind of sound like, yeah, it was like a, the glorification of that is like, that's what you do. That's my job almost. Well, I mean, I, I was 29. I was miserable. Uh, I was really, I was like, suicide was really the only sort of like bright light. It was it was sort of the only dim light in a really dark cave that I was in. I was like, well, if things get worse, I can always kill myself. And that was really my only hopeful sort of thing that I cl- kind of clung to. And then when I was like, well, maybe there's a different way to live. Like maybe, maybe there's another way. And I was like, well, I'd love for there to be another way, but I don't think there is. And then I explored that in rehab, and then I've been sober ever since. And there's definitely a better way. I mean, because that way was not good. And the way that I live now is much better. 
are there any songs that are like feel different? Did you ever write any songs about partying? That because I know that you talk sometimes in your songs about drinking a little bit or getting stoned or whatever. Is that just all put in its own place, or do you have to go somewhere different? You know what I'm talking about. I mean, I love, I love alcohol. I love drinking. I love, I I, I loved uh, pot for a long time. I didn't I didn't like it the last few years uh, before I got sober. But uh, I I've my one true love in my life is alcohol. Like it, I've been a nervous, uh, scared person with a lot of anxiety my entire life and the one thing that works 100% of the time is to pour a little alcohol on it mm-hmm. it goes away and it is a beautiful wonderful thing and and when i when i first was exposed to it i was like this is the medicine that i need what was the first drink you had do you remember was it like in germany somewhere it was in germany it was like some i was on some school trip and uh it was in germany and I remember, like, everybody kind of had drinks. So, like, I had, like, a six-pack of Budweiser, but then somebody had, like, a bottle of Brass Monkey, which is a real thing. It's not just a Beastie Boys song. There's <laughs> there, there's there's this cheap, sweet wine called Brass Monkey. Wow. And somebody had some of that. So, yeah, so we were just all in the back of the bus drinking drinking this stuff and I just drank until I puked but man I loved the feeling and then once once I did it I was like oh, I want to do this all the time so I never had a problem with drinking the problem that I had was blackouts um ruining my relationships hangovers so the problem wasn't the drinking and the problem was when I stopped drinking that was the problem like life was so unbearable after a point that um that I had to do something else. Yeah, wow. That's intense. I do remember my first time too. It was uh, 12 years old, drinking like my dad, spending the night at a friend's house and finding his dad's Scottish whiskey and feeling like, drinking it and feeling like, I just drank gasoline. It was so horrible. But the party, yeah, the, everything you're talking about, everything, every the reason that people drink, the uninhibitions, the loosening up, the magic of booze, once that hits you, it is... I mean, it is powerful. There's a reason that a lot of people are alcoholics. But at some point, you got to slow down on that, too. I've been having panic attacks recently, and I'm getting on a plane today. And one of the, I'm trying to figure out like, panic attacks are scary because they don't really know what they are. And uh, you can sort of find your own unique triggers. And I've kind of started to hone in on some of mine because have you had a panic attack, Bob? I've had one panic attack. Okay. I haven't had, I'm not going to like pretend I have them every day, but I've had about 10, which is a lot for me. And they're kind of ramping up in the last few years of my life. And uh, you feel like you're dying. You feel like you're going to die. It's one of the worst things that's ever happened to me is a panic attack. So when you, when that happens to you multiple times, you get what's called panic disorder where you will do, you will go through great lengths to reorient details of your life to avoid it. Right. And for me, it's like caffeine, alcohol. So if I'm flying, and you know I like to drink. I'm like I won't have a sip of alcohol the day before. I won't drink coffee, um, and that's kind of part of the growing up stuff. Like for you, you had to get sober. For me to be, feel like I'm well, I have to just stop doing shit that I did when I was a kid. I had to stop. You have to stop putting yourself in those situations, like you said, that were dangerous. Whatever that looks like, you know. Like 
What does that look like for you now? Like, what are you tempted to put yourself in harm's way by doing now, if anything? Food. Food is the thing. Same. Uh, I, uh, I, uh, I was on this great diet. Um, it wasn't even a diet. I was just on this, this tracker, which I had on my phone. And, and basically I was trying to meet these nutrition, uh, guides on my tracker, which is a certain number of uh, protein, certain number of carbs, certain number of fat every day. And what I was doing is I was, everything I would put in my body, I would put on this tracker. And so I would be like, oh, okay. So this has this and this has this. And and I was doing it and I did it for a couple months and I lost, I was losing a, a pound a week. So I lost like, what is that? Like about 10 pounds over the course of two this months. This is with no exercise, right? No exercise, just me being aware of what I'm eating and then making choices based on that, like going, well, do I want to eat this muffin because it's got this much and then I'm going to not make my goals and I'm going to hate myself and it worked. And then I got sick. And then as soon as I got sick, I was just like, I'm eating whatever I want because I might die and I'm going to eat some goddamn chocolate before I die. Right. And that has spun into now week four, I guess it's been about four weeks where I've just been eating bullshit. I gained all the weight back and more probably. And I don't want to stop. Like it's, I'm a drug addict and Every day I'm like, okay, today I'm gonna eat sensibly. I'm gonna I'm gonna get back on my tracker, and like literally within an hour, I'm eating a handful of muffins because I want that drug feeling of eating that sugar. And I would I would argue, and I think we've talked about this before, but that also is playing to to emotional psychological emptiness. It's it's for me, and you and I are very similar in this area. The constant eating is a desire to be full, a desire to not be empty. And I even go through, and you've seen me do this too, where it goes the other way for me, where my desire to control what I feel like is a completely out of control existence is I won't eat and I'll starve myself and I'll I'll lose 15 or 20 pounds and feel really good for a little bit. Actually, I'll feel like shit most of the time, but I'll feel like I look good in clothes. But that's, of course, not sustainable. And it's just another way to use food as a drug or use food as a conduit for escapism. You know, I do not know how to have a healthy relationship with food. I just don't know how to. It's, it's very, it feels very elusive to me because, because I'm, because I'm never happy when I'm eating, when I'm eating bullshit, I might be happy as it hits the tongue and goes down the throat, but that is it. It's very quick. I eat fast and the shame involved is so horrible i don't feel good and then when i'm eating healthily i hate the food and i feel empty and unfull psychologically and physically and that's i'm like i don't have any happiness associated with eating well i think it's i really truly believe that my relationship with food is similar to my relationship with sex the way it used to be back when i was using sex sort of as a drug when i was trying to get laid which basically for me wasn't about like, oh, how can I connect with another human being? How can I share this intimate experience with another human being? It was basically, how can I fucking gray out or white out for a while in my life mm-hmm. with, an, you know, using another person to completely disappear from my life? And, and uh, I use food that way. 
And uh, when I'm eating a goddamn chocolate bar, I'm disappearing from my life for for the time that that chocolate. And I'm telling you, like you're having those panic attacks. I have all this anxiety, and I'm telling you, it's you get when once you start doing that, you're like, I don't give a fuck, because the part of you that's like needs relief overrides the part of you that knows that's going to cause like all this shame and you're going to hate yourself and you're going to feel shitty. Like you eat that shitty food and you're going to feel shitty. And so I think what it is, it's, 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 it's similar in that like now I look back at my sex behavior from years ago and I go, that doesn't look good to me at all. Like I'd never want to do that again. And I think food can be that way. Like I think I can establish a healthy relationship with food but it will take time. It will take some painful growing stuff. And I don't think I can do it alone. I really don't. I think I need help um, with it. And uh, I think I'm going to have to do something about it. And to establish a healthy relationship with food where I'm not using food like drugs. Yeah, and it, yeah it needs to be a reset, like a hard reset. It feels like I should be at that point but because I hate the way I look. I hate the way I feel. But I'm not there yet, and uh, maybe I'll get there today or tomorrow or in a week. Well, a- I, I'm I'm your ally in that fight, and we should do it today. Fuck it. I'm not doing it today. Probably, probably not. Probably not, probably not going to happen today. I'll do it after the goddamn kiss cruise. <laughs> You're about to go on a cruise. That, yeah, yes. I'm about to go on a goddamn food orgy. Everywhere you turn, there's this free food everywhere. That, c- cruises are rough, man, when it comes to that. Oh. Well, I'm about to get on a plane, go to Miami. You're about to go to on the kiss cruise. Uh, I mean, I don't know if our listeners over here, and I'm okay, you're okay, land, uh, know this or not, but I'm a massive kiss fan, and you have history with Doc McGee, and I can't wait to hear about the kiss cruise. I wish I was on it with you. And uh, so we'll see you guys on the flip-flop. It's bobandclint at gmail.com if you want to send us an email. Bob's got another wonderful podcast called The Song Club. I've got one called Metal Up Your Podcast, which is about Metallica. And uh, we're going to get out of here and say peace. All right, peace. Peace. <laughs>